Endless Hustle presented by Cardan. If you're like me and you're noticing dark circles under your eyes, wrinkles creeping up, or breakouts, then Cardan is the best solution for you. Cardan is an effective skincare system for men. Cardan uses cactus extract in all their products to soothe the irritation from shaving. This quick, easy-to-use skincare system gives you real results in just a few steps. Use code BROBIBLE for 15% off. I fought a good fight. I finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. Basketball players, we're really supposed to shut up and dribble, but I'm glad, I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. Eventually, every ball would go flat, but that doesn't mean that your life will flatline. What will you do when the game is over? All right, Endless Hustlers, we are back for episode 79 of Bro Bible's Endless Hustle. We got a great episode ahead. I'm your host, Arthur Cade, and we have two incredibly impressive gentlemen on the show today. First up, you know him from The Daily Show. He's a legend, but now he's a star on one of the hottest shows on television, Evil, which just premiered season two on Paramount+. Plus. I'm talking about Asif Manvi, one of the funniest dudes around. You guys are going to love this interview talking about pretty much everything. How he got his gig at The Daily Show, the success of Evil. How about finding out that the show was renewed while he was apartment hunting? And then just talking about breaking out of the traditional stereotypical roles that he was being cast in when he first broke into Hollywood to now become a major television and film star. We're talking about it all. And then a rising star on the other end, Jaron Lewison, who's the star of one of Netflix's hottest shows, which also just returned for season two, Never Have I Ever. I was literally on Netflix all weekend and Never Have I Ever was like trending number one or number two. So everybody's watching this show and Jaron is one of the main faces on it. This is a just a great kid with a great story going to school full time at USC while starring on this incredible show. And we're talking all about the incredible success he's having at such a young age. I think you guys are going to really love this. So let's just jump right into it. Here he is kicking off the show is Asif Manvi. Great day on the Endless Hustle as I'm joined by the very talented, very funny and star of one of the best shows on television right now. I'm talking about Evil, but I'm also talking about Asif Manvi. Congrats. Evil's Thank back. You. And Thank it is you. Insane. Yes, we are. Congrats, man. This show has been so well received. That's got to just be a blessing. It really is. You know, it's I feel like I've been around long enough to know what it feels like when shows are not well received so when you when you get a show that people seem to like and people are responding to and fans and critics seem to like it um then you're kind of like okay let's just keep this gravy train going for as long as possible (laughs) you're like daddy needs a paycheck keep it going baby let's just keep going let's just keep going (laughs) so now you gotta walk me through this i'm always like curious as an actor obviously that first episode hits the pilot runs you're waiting for the ratings what's that feeling like when you're like all right i know we've got a good show here but are people actually going to give a shit like what's that moment like of waiting for the hey did we actually get eyeballs on this thing yeah i mean you know well when we we did the pilot and and the first hurdle is to sort of get what it's a series right and so we did and and i felt like you know, we did a, I think the pilot was great. And we all felt like we did a great job. And the Kings, you know, Robert and Michelle King um, are just such incredible writers and and Robert directed the pilot. And, uh, and we thought we had something good, but you know, it doesn't matter. Like you can think you have something good. And I, I thought I had something good many times, you know, and, and studios and networks, executives, they are living a whole, bubble of their own decision making that sometimes you can't understand and has often nothing to do with creativity or how good your show is you know so uh it was nerve-wracking and then we got ordered to series which we're really excited about and um you know that that phone call from my agents when they said hey you know you got you got a series order um I was actually with a bunch of friends at the time and my phone rang and I went out into the hallway and, um, and I came and I got the, and I took the call like in the hallway 
and then came back in and and we were having kind of a it was one of these it was it was a bunch of friends but we were also having like a kind of a meeting and so people were talking about like serious stuff and like there was a whole debate or not debate but a conversation going on and so i had to just kind of come in and i was super excited and i had to just sit on it you know and i just told one person in the room i was like yes you know and it was kind of like yeah oh great you know what i mean it was like and and we couldn't really until there was a break in the in the conversation really sort of talk about the thing but then everyone was very excited and i was super excited and i was really excited to work with this cast and and this uh and and the kings you know robert and michelle so it was it was it was all it was all very exciting by the way you're a better man than me because i would have walked right in and been like drinks on me everybody let's do it shots i thought about it and i and, and it was just one of those moments where like people were discussing like a serious topic and I was just like, I can't come in and just be like, I got a TV show, you know? So I, I waited for the right moment, you know? Meanwhile, it could be like out of work actors around you and they're like, you yeah. know what? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that, you know, it's always, it's always one of those things where, you know, for every actor that's working, there's 10 great actors who are out of work at any given time. So of your friends, you know, and so that's just a reality of, of the business. And I've been on the other side of that as well, you know. So then you get the season two order. How does that happen? And is it, it once you get that call, what's your reaction? Well, that call was really special because we, we were pregnant. And, and we we're about to have a baby. And my wife and I had been looking at an apartment because we wanted to move out of our apartment into a larger place so that for the baby, like to have a nursery and all that stuff. And we saw this place and, uh, and I thought, oh man, you know, it, it's a little above our price range. And we were like, it's right above our price range. We don't want to spend this much, but it's a great space and it'd be really great to have a baby here and to sort of, you know, uh, start that whole thing here. And I remember saying, and I said to my wife, I said, you know, if I just knew that Evil was getting a second season, I feel like I could, I could just, you know, put down the thing on this, you know, we could, we could. And that night we went home and the phone rang and it was Michelle King. And I saw her um, name come up on my phone. And at first I didn't answer it because I was like, oh, if she's calling me at home, it might be bad news. Like, you know, I was like, I was like, okay, this could be that we're canceled and we're done. Like she's calling me at nine o'clock at night on a Tuesday. Like it, it's, this is not gonna be good. And then I called it, I, I sort of composed myself. I got ready. I steelied myself for the bad news and I called her. And she said, um, guess what? I got great news. We, uh, we got picked up for a second season. And we were the, at the time, we were the shortest period. Like, like we were the fastest pickup that CBS had ever made uh, for a second season. We, we'd only aired four episodes at that point. And they picked us up and it was super exciting. And it was just, a, you know, and, and anyway, of course, my wife and I were like, we're getting that apartment. The realtor, <laughs> you know? the realtor right. gets the call like at two yeah. in the morning, like exactly. we're gold. We're doing it. We're doing it. So it just felt like a sign at that point. You know, I was like, oh, this is a sign. Like when, and you know, just we, it was all validation of the work that we had done and all the, um, the amazing, you know, uh, how amazing the show is and how how smart and weird and funny and terrifying the show is all all at once you know by the way wrapped in with the life of an actor and going project to project and like can i get this apartment yeah you know, like it's a, what an incredible story that's awesome yeah it was it was a pretty it was it was a moment where both of us just looked at each other and we were like okay this is and, and i remember saying to michelle at the time because I don't think that they, the, the Kings did not know at that point that I was um, having a baby. And so I remember just, she was on the call with me. She's like, we're getting picked up. And I was like, thank God. I was like, because I'm having a baby. <laughs> and, she was, and she was like, oh, that's awesome. You know, it was, it was, yeah, it's pretty crazy. I've always wanted to ask you about The Daily Show. I, I read like different stories yeah. about how you got the job. They literally threw you on the air the first night after you got the job. Is that true? Yeah, well, not the first. Well, 
I got the job. So yeah, I guess that I guess that is true. I auditioned for the Daily Show in the afternoon of August 9th, 2006. And it was one of those, this is another one of those crazy stories that I will one day put in my Hollywood stories, one man show, you know, it was just like, it, it, it was like I, I was writing a letter to my ex-girlfriend about how I was really depressed because she had just gotten engaged and I found out and I was really like hoping that we would get back or whatever. I, I was having one of those moments that a guy has after he screwed up a relationship. And, and, and so I was writing this letter and I remember I got the call from my agent and they were like, you have an audition for the daily show. And I was like, I can't do that today because I'm really sad. And so like, can I go tomorrow? <laughs> I don't feel very funny, you know? And so they were like, no, if you don't go today, it's done, just go. And then I was like, all right, fine. So <clears throat> I was like, what time are they seeing people to this? Like, they'll be seeing people till like 3.30 or so. And I said, okay, I'll get there like at 3.15. Um, and I'll, you know, and that's when I'll, and so I put on a suit and tie, went down to the studio, which actually used, I used to live on the Upper West Side in Manhattan and it was just in Midtown. So it was just like, I just, you know, it was like five minutes away. So I went down, walk in, there's Jon Stewart, you know, and I, I watched the show and I, you know, obviously knew who he was. And, and I was having one of those days where I was just like, fuck it, you know, fuck it all, you know, I don't care. Like, it was just one of those days where, and sometimes those are the times when you have the best audition or the best moment because you don't give a fuck about anything. So I was just like, fuck this shit. I was like, I'm not gonna get this job anyway. Like they're gonna get some like comedian guy. Cause I was coming more from like a theater I'd done a lot of comedy. I'd done sketch comedy and 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 even a little bit of stand up, but improv sketch more. You know, and I came and I was like, they're gonna get some like you know stand up or something, and and I'm not gonna get this job. So I, I went down, and I and I just did like a Stephen Colbert impression. Basically, I didn't know what I was doing. They just gave me this copy, and I remember they gave me a script, and I was reading it, and I was going over it, and I was like, oh, I gotta. And then they said, uh, you ready? And I said, no, you know, I really haven't had enough time with this material. I kind of need a little bit more time. And they were like, no, no, it's on the teleprompter. Don't worry about it. And, and, I, and I just remember thinking like, oh, this fucking, this teleprompter. I was like, I'm an, I've been on Broadway. Like, I've, you know, so I like was like, and so I go out there with a real attitude and then I did it. And, and oh, and then, and then um, John said to me, he said, you know, he never met me before. So he was like, I don't know, you know, what you've done, what your career is, but he's like, have you ever performed in front of a live audience before, you know? And I looked at him and I said, uh, I've been on Broadway. And then, and then he was like, oh, okay. He was like, oh, Mr. Broadway. All right, here we go. And, and so I don't know why I had so much attitude, but I did. And then I did it. And then he said, you're on the show tonight. Uh, are you ready? And, and it wasn't a, a, a contract yet. It was like a one-time gig, but like they, they, I was on the show that night and nobody knew I was going to be on the show. I didn't even have time to tell people. And so people were like emailing me and whatever. And they were like, this is a guy who looks like you on the daily show. Like, did you know this? They had a guy who looks exactly like, and I was like, uh. and, um, and then, and I was like, I guess I was the first non-Caucasian correspondent on the daily show. And um, the, to the point that the LA times wrote a huge article about me the next day saying like the daily show has finally gone brown like they've, like they've they've crossed the barrier into a brown guy and uh and i did that for a while and and then john john was just my champion at that point and he like just kept having me back on the show he liked me he thought i was good that was funny and then after about six months of that they offered me a contract and i started officially in 2007 um but it was a crazy story and it also happened that that um the night that I was on that very night, Bruce Springsteen was in the audience of the show. And he just happened to have come by just to see the show. Like he was in town and he brought his kid and he was like, let's go see the Daily Show. And so he just came by. And, um, and then he came backstage afterwards and it was my first time on the show. And he came up to me and he was like, yeah, you're really good, man. You're really good. Like I heard you it was your first time. And I was like, you're a good singer. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's unbelievable. Yeah, it was crazy. It was a crazy day. It was one of those crazy days. You guys, you know, you guys got to experience. I feel like that was the heyday of The Daily Show, right from when you came on to the end. 
That's when John became the A-list political commentator of all political commentators. I feel like the early 2000s, it was more of that cult feeling. But then The Daily Show went mainstream. When it ends up going mainstream, and his voice is one of the leading political voices in the world at that point, what's that environment like? And you guys are in the writer's room. You're dissecting what he's going to say. Did, did he understand his impact of what was coming out of his mouth for the next you know, 13, 12 years, whatever it was? I think that there was always a sense of like, we always understood how much we were part of the zeitgeist and, and, and what a sort of force the Daily Show was, but, but there was always a kind of, inside the bubble of the Daily Show, there was a kind of like, we don't talk about that, almost like, we're just a little show, we're just doing our thing and we don't wanna lose that. You know what I mean? Like, like immediately when you start taking yourself too seriously and think you are like, shaping the culture in some way is that when you collapse you know and so I think there was a sort of sense of like keeping the integrity of what we were doing which was ultimately just being a really smart comedy show dealing with topics of the day and and I think there was definitely a sense of like we don't want to get too full of ourselves at any point even though we were winning Emmys like every year you know like but there was a kind of weird like it was like a weird balancing act. Like we knew what was happening. And yet at the same time, it was like, la, 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 la. I don't want to think about that because you wanted to keep the integrity of, of just that feeling. And, 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 and that's what I think made it work in some ways was that we never really, um, we knew we were dealing with serious things and we knew we had important, smart, funny things to say. And we were working with incredibly smart writers and incredibly smart people on the show and funny people on the show. Um, but it never felt like we never wanted to lose the sense of play and comedy and just the sense of fun that people, because if people weren't entertained by the show, then it would lose all of its teeth. And so at the end of the day, I think it was mo- it was, it was always about like, you know, like as smart and high and lofty and highbrow as we wanted to be, we always, always needed to come back to the fart jokes. We needed to come back to the, you know what I mean? Like the thing that just kept it real and kept it just like funny, you know? By the way, John's back from his uh, extended hiatus now too. He's got a new show. I mean, of course you're not going to keep him off the air. He's probably sitting there writing material for two right. years pets and that farm he has or whatever and he's like i gotta get fucking back on the air i need i need to be back i'm sure he must finally now feel antsy about um wanting to get back into the game you know i think that you know when i was on the show we were in that period of like iraq and you know bush and then into obama and the and the sort of whole obama years and all that and then i think now that we've been in this trump time I'm, I'm sure there's there's a lot, I'm sure for him, there's a lot of stuff that he wants to say and that he's been sitting on, you know, for a long time. You know, someone like him who's as creative and, and smart and funny, I think you're only gonna like keep him on the farm for so long, you know? That's a fascinating thing with your career, by the way. And I didn't realize how much of a theater background you had. You then end up on The Daily Show, which you're right, is mainly a traditional, you know, hey, I'm a stand-up comic. Here's my next gig. Yeah. When you have to leave that, the show, obviously, John leaves the show and it transitions to Trevor. Are you kind of like, oh, shit, what's next? Like, I've been doing this for so long. Is it tough to find acting jobs? Do people just see you as Daily Show correspondent at that point? Like, what's it like leaving that point? Well, it was actually interesting because I actually left before John left in, in but I didn't officially leave. So I got a show on HBO called The Brink. Yep. With Jack Black and Tim Robbins. Um, and I left to go do that. And it was Jay Roach was producing it. And I was actually in the writer's room of that show as well as being on the show. And I got this amazing gig. So I left like the year, like like a few months before John did. But I was sort of like, I'll come back and I'll do occasional gigs every now and then. And so they didn't give me an official goodbye. I kind of was just like, I'll, I'll come back. I'll, I'll, I'll pop in every now and then. And then I got this other show and I moved out to LA for a while and I was doing that. And then John, when John finally left, um, I came back for the finale of, of, of John's show and, and all that. And then the Brink got canceled. And so 
then I was in this weird wasteland of like the show that I had left the Daily Show for got canceled after one season and the Daily Show itself was no longer the Daily Show that I wanted. I didn't feel like I could go back to the new show because it felt almost like going back to high school after you've already graduated. You right, know? Right. Like I was like Matthew McConaughey and Dazed and Confused or something, <laughs> you know? And so I didn't feel like you know, Trevor was was rebranding the show in some ways. He was bringing it as he, you know, as he should have and, and was um, inclined to do. Like he was bringing in his own people and and stuff. And so a lot of and there's been a lot of changeover with Hassan coming in and and Jordan Klepper and and all these other guys coming in as well. Um, so I was in this weird wasteland for a while where. I didn't know what was next. And actually, strangely enough, I was getting a lot of offers for stuff that was sort of similar to The Daily Show or, or like they wanted me to play that character all the time. That sort of, in fact, I got high, I got offered the role of Lemony Snicket in the, um, in the Netflix series, uh, series of unfortunate events um, that, um, but it was a kind of similar sort of role in the sense that he was he, he was a narrator and he was talking to camera and he was you know just in a suit and tie whatever and he was kind of had the he was sort of doing the narration and it was very kind of like reportery kind of sort of thing and i just didn't want to do that i wanted to do something completely different so for a while i was doing like this and that and kind of doing guest spots here and a, a little movie or two here and there and, and writing stuff. And I, uh, and then, and then, you know, it was a little period of time where I was sort of just doing like arcs on different shows. I did, you know, person of interest and a show called shut eye on Hulu and a bunch of different stuff. And then, and then finally evil uh, came along after a few years. You're so like, I have a steady paycheck. That, and then you find out it's really steady. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, the Daily Show was an unusual gig in the sense that it's very rare for an actor to have a steady gig for almost 10 years. Yep. And that was an unusual situation, you know, for even if you're on a hit series, um, you don't usually get work that that's that steady for that long. So, so you're obviously in. Indian and I, I have a ton of Indian friends. I'm Russian, and there's the 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 that generation. Our parents, they don't believe in what we do. Like we're supposed to be doctors and accountants right, sure. and surgeons. Yeah. So when you come to your family and you're like, by the way, mom, dad, I'm going to be an actor. What was the reaction? Well, I decided I wanted to be an actor when I was very young. I was like maybe about eleven or twelve years old, and I I sort of fell in love with this thing, this acting, performing thing, and I was a very theatrical child. And so I think my mother kind of knew like, oh, this kid, this kid is kind of destined to go in this way. And I think she was worried about it and sort of tried. They never forced me into like doing medicine or engineering or one of, you know, because I, I was also like a shit student. Like I was not getting I, I got good grades in English and drama. That was where I got all my, you know, like the A's and everything else was like D's. So like they were very concerned, I think, with my future for a long time. But then they sort of saw, you know, after I, I got my first professional gig out of school and I was working at Disney, I went to high school and college in Tampa, Florida. And went over to Orlando and got like this gig at Disney doing like improv comedy and stuff and started making my own money and, and all that kind of thing. I think they sort of started to go, all right, maybe he has somewhat of a shot at this. You know, we also emigrated to the United States when I was in high school from England. And so my parents were distracted for a few years. And I think that helped me in some way. Like it was like they were distracted and trying to rebuild a life in America and, and, and having like left everything back home in England. So I think for a few years they were distracted and they, and I, and I sort of in that, in that period of time, I ended up sort of doing drama in high school and, and getting, you know, like accolades for it. And people said, go, oh, he's good. You know, he's pretty good at this. And I think he can do this. And so I think by the time they turned around and were like, wait a minute, what have you been doing? Like I had already like gotten a theater scholarship 
to USF, you know? And so I was like, look, you don't have to pay for college. And they were like, oh, damn, <laughs> you know? They're like, so you're not gonna be a neurosurgeon? Wait, what? I think they knew that they pretty much knew that there was no neurosurgeon in my future. Like I was basically getting F's in math and science, you know, like it wasn't like I was applying myself in any other area other than like goofing around, so. <laughs> On your Wikipedia, it actually says that your dad moved you guys here because there's brunch here. So in my book, uh, no lands man. I I, I wrote a story about how my dad came to America and he was thinking of moving us here. And he had a friend and he came here and he like visited Florida and he called us on the phone and he said, you know, this is the most amazing country. And he was like, Florida, it was the eighties, you know, and he was like, it's love, wonderful, blah, sunshine and da, 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 all this stuff. And then he was like, and they have this thing here called brunch. And in the eighties, there was no such thing as brunch in the UK, like it wasn't a thing. So he was like, we have this brunch and it's, it's amazing. And he thought that between breakfast and lunch, there was another meal called brunch. <laughs> like it was like, he didn't know that it was like a Sunday thing where, you know, like, but he was like, and I remember him saying, they have so much food in this country that between breakfast and lunch, they have to stop and eat again. They have another meal, it's called brunch. And it's $7.95, anything you want, all the food you can eat. He was just like completely like, just gobsmacked by brunch. And so I, I exaggerate, but I think it was one of the reasons, you know, that he brought us to America. So when you start breaking through and trying to get gigs in LA and Hollywood, are they trying to essentially put you into like traditional, hey, you're going to play Indian A or Indian B? Was there that stereotypical, we're just going to pigeonhole you? Or were you able to kind of break out of a mold pretty quickly? No, there were many years where I played sort of just the the deli owner, cab driver, you know, the, and then it, then it sort of upgraded to terrorist and then doctor, you know, it was like, it, it, it just depended on, on what, white people thought brown people were at any given time, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 look, it, it started to get, I guess, change for me definitely after The Daily Show. After The Daily Show, uh, and then after I did my one-man show, it was sort of like a, a step process. Like I did my one-man show, uh, which got a lot of, I did the show called Sakina's Restaurant, which we played off Broadway and it ran for many months in New York and we won Obie Awards. And suddenly I sort of appear, like like I was on people's radar in a way that I wasn't. And then, and then people, it was still like the, Hollywood just wasn't writing the roles at the time. The reason I wrote my one man show was because I kept getting cast as like a deli owner and I didn't get to do any like real acting. and. And so I started writing characters that I thought I wanted to play, which had real emotional depth and real sort of, you know, really funny or really like whatever. And I thought, I'll just write those characters. And then I think people saw that and they thought, oh, this guy can act and he's pretty good. And so, but I was still getting like the roles, you know, of, of the, that were essentially like one dimensional brown characters because that's all they were writing in Hollywood at that time in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so I, I sort of made my living doing a lot of those kind of parts until The Daily Show came along. And then when The Daily Show came along, I realized, I mean, I, I think people started seeing me in a different way and, and, my, and, and sort of the perception of who I was as an actor and as a comedian, as a writer, as a creator changed. And then I started getting offered um, roles that were more interesting and, and, and stuff like that. Were there, were there moments during that decade where you're like, shit, this is all they're gonna ever see me as? Like, what am I doing here? Maybe I should have become a neurosurgeon or tried. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, obviously like there were times it was really it was really frustrating, you know, where you just sort of felt like there's never gonna be, um, cause I saw all of my white friends, like I was in class, in acting class with, uh, in, in Wynn Handman's acting class. And I remember like a lot of my friends or the people I was in class with went out to LA and they got TV shows and sitcoms and, 
and they were blowing up, you know, and they and they were like, it's great out here. It's great in LA. You know, you should come out here. This is in TV. Like, yeah, you know, they were just like getting stuff. And, and, uh, and I went out to LA and, and my agents were literally like, go back to New York. There's nothing for you here. Like, it was just like, you know, I sat around for like four months and, and they were like, yeah, there's just not nothing for you. And so they were, why don't you go do theater in New York? And I was like, all right, I guess I'll go do theater in New York. And so I was doing theater as well, you know, and, and that was a big way for me to also um, pay the bills was to do theater. And, um, and then I, you know, did sketch comedy and all that stuff. And it was a great what it was for me was it was a way for me to, I, I, I just did whatever because there was no roadmap for me at that time. As a brown actor in this business, at that time, there was no roadmap. It was like whatever got you in the room. And so I was doing Shakespeare in theater and then I was doing stand-up comedy. And I was doing, you know, I was, I was doing, I was doing anything and everything because I was just like, whatever I got to do. So it made my sort of breadth of like what I was doing. It, I think it helped me as an artist and it made me a better artist and a better writer, a better creator, you know? Um, and, and I think all of that, I, I really believe that it was the, it was the wealth of all of that that then finally kind of came to a point when I auditioned for Jon Stewart. And I think that's what he saw because I wasn't the typical guy that they would have brought into The Daily Show. I think what he saw was, oh, here's a guy who's an actor, but he's also really funny. And he's also kind of, you know, he saw something in me that was more than just an actor. Dude, this was awesome. Before I let you go, one of the reasons that I started this show was to talk to successful people yeah. about how they're able to achieve their success. So my question to you, Asif Manvi, is how do you continue to elevate both on and off screen? Gosh, um, I think I just keep on not taking it all that seriously. And I mean, there's a bunch of ways, right? One is I try to keep things in perspective in terms of like this business and the career and and the, the 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 kind of fickleness of it all and try to stay grounded in the work that I'm doing you know um it's very easy to sort of just kind of go like I'll just phone it in and you know as and weirdly as I've gotten older I I I, I spend more time on the craft of of what I'm doing than I did when I was younger in a weird way, because now I feel like um, I, I can't just, I, I, I really value everything that I have, you know, and, and, and I really have gratitude for a lot of what has come, even evil and, and everything else that is, that is happening uh, work-wise and, and personally in my life. But um, I think it's just staying really present and just knowing also that the business has is is like this it's up and down and and you know there were periods of my you know after the daily show and all that stuff where i was really like i didn't know what was going to happen i didn't know what was coming next you know and this idea and i've always sort of kept this mantra of like as long as i can keep creating as long as i can keep doing stuff and keep pedaling that bike something eventually will percolate and will and will happen so i just try to stay true to my own create creativity i just don't I, I just don't stop ever being creative and trying to write or perform or you know just even just be good tell jokes or whatever you know do stand up or whatever it is that i can do to stay in that space of creativity um i think keeps me grounded um outside of all the bullshit of the business and the sort of ups and downs. I read, I read a, a, a not, I didn't read, I heard a bio thing of John Wayne once and they were talking about John and how his career had this huge lull, which people don't realize that like for a long time, like he wasn't working at all. And I just thought like, if John Wayne is not working for a long time, then what am I complaining about? You know what I mean? Um, and, and it's hard, it's, you gotta keep, you know, and, and, and a good therapist. I would say that's, also <laughs> that's the key. Really helpful. Whatever yeah. money is coming in, you got to blow on the therapist to stay I, sane. I, I, I definitely, I advise everybody in this business 
to like spend whatever you need to spend on a therapist because it's very, very valuable. Bro, this was awesome. You're absolutely hilarious. I was in tears at certain points. Congratulations, season Thank two you. of Evil, Paramount Plus. You're welcome back anytime, Asif Manvi. Congrats on everything and Thank congrats so on the new apartment and being able to afford it. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. All right, folks, that was a fabulous interview with former Daily Show correspondent, now evil star, Asif Manvi. Make sure to catch season two of Evil. It's a fantastic show on Paramount+. Plus. Asif's doing a great job, and those stories were absolutely priceless. Our next guest is mentioned at the top of the show, one of the hottest young stars in Hollywood, already nominated for an MTV award. I mean, that's, that's the moment you made it as a young kid. Speaking from an old man's perspective, that's the moment right there. But uh, Jaron Lewison, great kid, going to school full-time. He's also the star of one of the hottest shows on Netflix, Never Have I Ever. We're chatting about it all. Make sure to catch the brand new season of Never Have I Ever on Netflix. But listen to this interview first. Here he is, Jaron Lewison. All right, we're back on The Endless Hustle as I'm joined by, I can say, a big Gen Z star. As an old man myself, I love saying this. He's part of one of Netflix's biggest just young shows, Never Have I Ever. It's back for season two. And what blows my mind about you, Jaron Lewison, as you're making this hit show, you're a student. So, man, I'd love to be on a hit show in college. It's got to be fun. It's unbelievable. It's it's great because I've got the best of both worlds. I've got my dreams coming true at work and I'm on an incredible show with some really amazing, talented people. And it's such a joy to be there and work there. And also college is awesome. Everybody says it's the best times of your life. And it really has been for me. I've met some lifelong friends and I love being in class and learning more in person than it is online, but hopefully we'll, we'll get back to in-person soon and I can have school spirit and all those college things. So this show got, I saw the viewership numbers, 48 million streams, which anytime Netflix releases these numbers, you're a hit. <laughs> you're getting season two and probably you're going till season eight because that's Netflix money. They can spend whatever they want. But what's it like walking around college when you're on a hit show? You've got to feel the eyeballs coming at you from every direction virtual this year so because the show came out during the pandemic I haven't had the opportunity to really be full-fledged on campus interacting with my my peers at USC but I have had the opportunity to get to interact with some fans whether it's in LA and people recognize me with my mask on or in Texas now that I'm back here for the summer it's it's unbelievable the response that we've gotten again our show is so diverse and relatable that the I have people coming up to me being like, wow, the show is so incredible. And they're like a 50 year old Jack dude in a Thai restaurant. Like that happened to me one time and it was so unexpected. And it's, it's really incredible to hear how much our show means to so many different people. It's really an actor's dream to be on a show like that. I know you're a big sports guy. So let's start with dude. the first one, the Dallas stars. Cause I know you're a big stars fan. Tell me all about your stars fandom. I have always wanted to play hockey ever since I was a kid. I took lessons when I was younger and then decided to play football and soccer and powerlifting in high school. So stopped learning how to play hockey. And I became such a big Stars fan in high school. I learned all of the players' names. I've even gotten in contact a little bit with the Stars because I can't stop tagging them in my posts. I watched every single playoff game in our Stanley Cup run last year. I was sorely disappointed and harbor a little bit of Hatred for the Tampa Bay Lightning. Sorry to any Lightning fans out there, but you're just too good. Let somebody else have a chance. <laughs> um, a little disappointed in our performance this year, but I love the Stars. Uh, my hockey dreams of being a professional Stars player are probably not going to be realized, but I am taking adult skating lessons because I want to play beer league because I, uh, I love hockey and I figure why not? Got to learn how to skate first. So maybe one day I'll, I'll, I'll play some hockey. You wouldn't necessarily think of Dallas as a hockey town, but anyone who knows hockey knows that Dallas loves the stars. What's the culture like down there around the franchise? Everybody's super excited about the stars, especially when they do well. It is a big football town. I'm a big Cowboys fan. I love the Cowboys. You know, it's I've grown up that way. I have never had them be good 
because I was born in 2000. Everybody's like, oh, they had such a dynasty. I'm like, yeah, I missed it. Still haven't seen it. Hopefully it's coming soon. But we do have a pretty large hockey fan base. I know that people love going to the American Airlines Center for games. I love going for games. And it's exciting when you've got some young, exciting players to watch that are really skilled. I think we've got some young guys that are going to be pretty incredible in the years to come. So I'm excited about our future. Now I just need my Cowboys to pull through as well. So if you got a dream hockey experience, what would it be? God, I want to, okay. This might sound crazy, but I have always loved the goalies and I've always wanted to like try on all the pads and stuff. And I don't know that I'd want to get shot at by like Tyler Sagan or Jamie Ben or, you know, an NHL star, because I feel like that'd be terrifying, but maybe they could teach me some moves. I'll, uh, Ben Bishop could give me some pointers in the, in between the pipes and I could, I could save some uh, easy wrist shots at 10% of their actual power, perhaps. <laughs> so speaking of sports, your narrator for season one of never have I ever was none other than John McEnroe of all people, yes. which is like the craziest thing. Who knew John McEnroe's narrating Netflix shows? He's also incredible. That man is so funny. I mean, like you wouldn't expect him to be narrating a 15-year-old Tamil girl's life, but he is so freaking excellent in that. So when you when when this show catches fire, like obviously you're a young guy, so you haven't been around the business for 40 years. Because I talk to actors and they're like, shit, I've been a part of 50 pilots. They all failed till I got my break. It's awful. Here you are part of a hit show. Does it, do you feel almost spoiled? Like how, when you sit back and you're like, man, I right away got on this show and it's got 50 million people watching it. Like what's going through your head as you're seeing the success? You know, I, it's almost a little bit like in sports where you, sometimes you have really great rookies come in and it's like, wow, they're a success overnight. But you, you think about it, it's like, well, they've been training since they were, you know, in diapers for say hockey, you know, they've been, They've been working at it for such a long time. I started when I was five. So I actually have been doing this for about 15 years. This is the biggest thing I've ever done. Like this is my draft day. This is my shot. And I've finally gotten into a franchise working for Netflix, who's such an incredible employer that has allowed me to really explode. I feel like I'm on my Stanley cup run right now. You know, I'm getting the, the chance to really show off my skills and to learn and to grow as a young player and actor as well. And um, it's just, it's exciting for the things to come and, I'm looking forward to staying in the league if we're still using metaphors of uh, continuing with other projects and being able to show off what I can do. So where did, you obviously started at five, but like, were there ever moments where you're like, all right, this isn't what I want to do or were you just dead set? I'm going to be an actor. Yeah, I mean, I've always wanted to be an actor, but I feel like like sports and like anything, sometimes you can get discouraged. And the important part, I, I played football in high school and those lessons never left me where my coach always said, you know, you got you to gotta compete and you got to get through adversity. You're going to be faced with challenges and you've got to be able to overcome those. And there's strategies that I use to do that, whether it's, you know, mental comparison and, and uh, goal setting and things like that, that you do in sports. It's the same thing for actors. Sometimes we go through setbacks and sometimes we have great success and it's a roller coaster, but it's what I love to do. It's what I've always loved to do. And I'm going to keep going for as long as I can. Let's talk some Texas football because please until Friday night lights came out outside of Texas pre like people didn't really realize what Texas football means to that state. Then Friday night lights comes out. People are like, Oh my God, Midland, Odessa. Like what are these places? What is happening? I had Luke Wilson on the show last week. He's from Dallas and he grew yeah. up playing football too. And yeah. we were talking just about the football culture around Dallas and Fort Worth. So Having played yourself, what is that culture like? It's unlike anywhere I have ever been. People say like football is like a religion here, but genuinely it is an identity. It is a community. Everybody comes out and watches the games. And as a player playing under the lights, whether it's the spring game or the rivalry game, which was always my favorite, it's this energy, this electricity, this magic for anybody that has played football, sports, you can just feel it. It's something that's intangible, but you know what I'm talking about if you've ever felt it. And I also was undersized and everybody always judged me. They were like, Oh, throw it to the short kid. I was the captain my senior year, but I always had something to prove. I had a chip on my shoulder and we wound up my high school. My senior year ended up beating Cedar Hill in the playoffs of the first round. We were 40 point underdogs 
and we beat them off of a last second field goal that they had missed. And it was covered in the news. And that was one of my favorite memories from high school. Still to this day, I think about the goosebumps that I got pouring the Gatorade on my coach and running into the field. It's something that everybody should experience if they have the chance. Texas football is like nothing you've ever seen. Wait, so you were like the cool kid in high school. So <laughs> now I'm really jealous. Hit show and Netflix in college. Team captain in Dallas in football. Like, dude, you might be living my dream life. I think I'm gonna like, I think I'm gonna do like a deal with the devil and come back as Jaron Lewison. Like, that's my ask, like for the next stage of my life. <laughs> Man, I appreciate that. I feel really lucky to have been able to experience both of those things and others as well. And I'm looking forward to more crazy adventures for myself. Uh, you know, who knows what's next? I have no yeah, idea. Wait, wait till you're an A-list actor. It's going to make Dallas football look like. So when you're in high school, were you getting actual college offers, any college interests? No, I wasn't. I, I never had pursued that. Uh, I also, again, being like five, six, I, I was an undersized guy. I did run a four, five, eight, 40 in high school. So I was really quick. And I also was a power lifter. And I was uh, one of the captains for that. I did win some powerlifting meets, some local powerlifting meets. When I was a junior, I hit 405 on squat in the 132 weight pound class. So that also is something that I love to do, but never pursued it collegiately. I thought about joining at USC. They have a club powerlifting team, but I just didn't have the time to train. And it's pretty hard on your body for powerlifters out there that know what I'm talking about or weightlifters in general. It's uh, it's a tough season and it requires a lot of effort and, I, I just didn't have time, but maybe in the future, who knows, right? By the way, getting an MTV nomination, an MTV movie award, like, I mean, like, I would literally have that framed. That's like the, for your age group, that's like the coolest thing. So when you find out that you're nominated by MTV, like, are you like jumping through the roof? Yeah, man. I mean, I, I tell you the truth, I didn't believe it at first because that is such a well-known, huge award show. It was like one of the first big nominations besides the People's Choice Award, which we did win as a cast um, for, uh, I think it was Best Comedy. And, and that was super exciting. And the MTV Award, for my character, you know, it's the Best Kiss nomination, which is super exciting because that means that so many people identified with your character and, and with your scene partner, Maitri Ramakrishnan, who plays Davey, who's the lead in our show. And that's a bit of a spoiler alert uh, for the uh, Best Kiss nomination, but it just shows how many people love our show and, and, and loved our characters and related to that. So for me as an actor, that tells me I really did my job and I did it well and my trade did, and we're just really proud of that. I don't know if you saw, but your executive producer, Mindy Kaling, who's now become one of the biggest producers in Hollywood, yeah. she partnered up with Kurt Rambis's wife and Jeannie Buss, and they're doing a Lakers- Yes. Workplace. So now that you're in the Mindy Kaling, I work for you club. Are you able to like, be like, Hey, this Lakers series, uh, if you need, if you need a kid who's athletic and you've worked with and he shows up on time, you know where to go. Is there like, are you able to reach out in that respect? Well, tell you the truth. I feel so lucky to be able to work with Mindy on this show right now. If she ever needs me, I'm there. She knows where to find me. It's a yes for me. It, no matter what she wants me to do, I, I don't even need to read it. You can just, yeah, I'm there. You, you let me know what time to show up. I'll be there 10 minutes early. <laughs> yeah, you're like, Mindy, I'm in. Whatever you, you need me I, to be. I love Mindy. I'm in. <laughs> exactly right. She's incredible. Whatever she wants me to do, she's got it. Yes, it's a yes for me. <laughs> Dude, you're electric. You've got a sterling personality, a bright future ahead. Congrats on this incredible show that you guys are part of. And, you know, I, I could only imagine the offers are now coming in. The scripts are coming in. Have you started thinking about, by the way, like where you want to be 5, 10, 15 years? It's kind of a cliche. Like everybody wants to be Leo or Mark Wahlberg or whatever. But is there like a specific path that you've kind of framed in your mind for where you'd like to build this thing? Yeah, absolutely. I, I love some of my role models are Steve Carell and John Krasinski and Mindy as well. People that can do multiple aspects of our business and are really multifaceted in what they're incredible at doing. I know that John originally started out on The Office and then has written and become kind of a leading man. And, and that's the, cra the uh, path that I really want to craft for myself and my team. And uh, we've talked about it a lot. And I know that being a leading man and, and doing films and really complex, deep characters that have lots of layers is something that I really want to get into. 
I love variety of film and, and different kinds of genres and I love TV as well. So I'm really excited to see what the next couple of years hold for me and the kinds of projects that I'll have the ability to do and the types of characters that I'm going to portray. I can't wait to see what's next. By the way, you've got a massive social media following. So yeah. I got to know some of the craziest DM slip-ins you've had, <laughs> whether they're strange or crazy. I can only imagine the shit that's being thrown at you. A lot of them are just really excited fans that are like, I love you so much. And I don't have the opportunity to respond to everybody, but I do try. Occasionally someone will be like, hey, it's my 21st birthday. Like, can you like send me a video of you doing a cheers or something? And like some of those, I'll, if I see them, I'll, I'll send a video and they freak out and I love it. But again, it just speaks to how much people love the show. And still, I can't believe it. I'm like, oh my God, these people are the one thing they want for their birthday. It's like a video of me saying happy birthday. That's just, that's wild to me. And then interactions with like the Dallas stars and uh, I'm a big tennis fan. So I've gotten the chance to speak with head tennis, which is my favorite tennis brand. And it's just, it's unbelievable. You know, like a couple of years ago, I was just a normal football kid from Texas who was trying to act and see what the hell would have happened. And now I can't believe it. Every time I go look at my DMS, it's just, it's really special. They see the blue check mark. They see the number. They're like, who is this kid? Like we got to head, head tennis is like, they need you more than you need them, by the way. <laughs> I don't know. They, I, my forehand has gotten so good from using the gravity MP, which is a special racket. I just started using from head. And I mean, they've really upped my tennis game. So I love working with them. <laughs> Dude, you're absolutely awesome. I, a kid your age should not have this great a personality, but you're, you're awesome. And this has been you, this has been a joy. I wasn't sure what to expect. And <laughs> I'm like, I had a great time, man. So congrats on season two of Never Have I Ever. Probably going to season eight. We'll be doing this for another <laughs> six seasons together. But congratulations, man. Jaron, you're awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time as well. This was, uh, this was a lot of fun. All right, folks, that was Jaron Lewison with a fantastic interview. Make sure to catch the brand new season of Never Have I Ever on Netflix. It's available now. All right, folks, that's another fantastic episode of Bro Bible's Endless Hustle. Make sure to subscribe, rate, follow us on social media, show us love, give us hugs, blow us kisses. You know the deal. On social media, Endless Hustle is on Twitter at Endless Double Underscore Hustle. On Instagram, we are at Endless Hustle Pod. Me personally, I'm at It's Me, Arthur Cade on Instagram, at Arthur Cade on Twitter. We are back on Thursday with a triple header. Great, great group of guests. We have Emmanuel Acho, one of the hottest and most popular faces in television and sports right now. Then we are joined by the prophet himself, CNBC's The Prophet, Marcus Limonis, brand new podcast for him that we're talking about. And then our third guest is a woman making waves in the health and wellness world. She has a company, a brilliant company called Routine. Her name is Rachel. We're chatting all about it. So we'll see you on Thursday, guys. Keep endlessly hustling. And thanks as always for listening and watching. See you Thursday. <laughs>